Welcome to the Mom Village Podcast. We are three multicultural moms sharing our journey through motherhood with the Christ Center Foundation. For information and resources, visit us at our church's website at gofamilychurch.org. Or you can also email us at themomvillage at gofamilychurch.org. And please go over and follow us on Instagram at themomvillagefc. We're glad that you're here and welcome to our village. Hello, mom, and welcome to the Mom Village. My name is Chismeri Ramos, and we are here in part two of Adolescent Mental Health. And I'm here with my friends, Kira Kelly. Good morning. And Kristen Scroggins. Hi, ladies. And we have an awesome, awesome episode for you. And we have a guest with us, Kira. Who's our guest? This morning, we are in continuing to part two with Sarah Rayner. Should Yay! I call you Dr. Sarah? Do- <laughs> Let's do it. Sarah, can I call you Dr. Sarah? Yes, yes, if you would like to. <laughs> it's just so cute. Okay, Dr. So, Sarah. Dr. Sarah. <laughs> so yes, we're continuing our conversation about adolescent mental health. And today we're going to tackle high schoolers. In the previous podcast, we discussed middle school, but today we're going to tackle the high schoolers. So I know there are probably a lot of moms out there who are thinking, oh, I don't have a high schooler. I'm still in that toddler and baby phase. But I think at least Kristen and I can say before you blink, you will be there. So we just want to give you all, give you moms out there, just heads up about what's coming and just so you can start thinking and praying and being prepared for all the stages that are coming up really, really quickly. So Sarah, we ended our last episode and you talked a little bit about social media and you kind of gave us five questions as moms, as parents, Christian moms as parents that we need to begin to think about as our teens and young teens are approaching us with these questions about social media and I know we didn't get an opportunity to dig deeper into those questions, and we are looking forward to that opportunity, but can we kind of segue into giving us some tips about even our high schoolers as far as social media? What are some of the questions we need to be asking? How should we prepare our high schoolers? What should our roles be as parents as our kids, high schoolers, are entering into this phase of just interacting with people on social media? What do we need to do? (laughs) Well, when we talk about high school, we're specifically going to focus in on ages 14 to really 18, possibly 19, but more 14 to 18. And that's what this topic of social media in high school, when we are talking about, keep those age ranges in mind. So one of the questions that we asked when we were talking about social media in middle school was, is there, are there any age restrictions? And we answered that question with yes. But for high school, we're past the age restrictions for most of those because many of those platforms like Facebook and Instagram, the minimal age is 13. So now we're talking about 14-year-olds. So they actually meet that criteria for having social media. Again, social media, what we said with middle schoolers, doesn't differ with high schoolers as to why they're using it, and that's for entertainment, education, mm-hmm. and social connection. And so it's not just your Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's also YouTube. And if you think about YouTube, there are educational videos on YouTube. And that's where a lot of high schoolers are turning. YouTube is actually one of the most used social media platforms amongst high schoolers, followed by Facebook and like TikTok and Instagram. And so, you know, again, there's, there's two extremes that we could take where I would say are, are not healthy, and that's social media is all bad, and, and we have to save our kids from social media, and then, oh, we should have no restrictions at all, it's fine, and I trust my child. And I would say neither of those are healthy, just like most things in life, there has to be some sort of moderation. 
And so when we go through what are the risks for middle schoolers, I'm going to tell you just about some of the research and what as parents we need to think of the risk being and what we look at as what are the benefits? Because there actually are some benefits to social media. Mm-hmm. And so here's where we're going to first look at the risk of social media. So for high schoolers, and, and again, this might differ some in middle schoolers when social media is properly used, but for high schoolers, even under what I would call appropriate supervision, here are some of the risks associated with it. Cyberbullying, sleep deprivation, and I will dive more into that, but that is really important because sleep deprivation can lead to symptoms or exacerbate symptoms of ADHD, anxiety, depression, weight gain, all kinds of things. So you can have an increase in anxiety and depression, mostly related to sleep issues. They might be viewing inappropriate content. And whether you have a great kid or a child who gets in trouble, the, one of the struggles with social media is things like pop-ups mm. or inappropriate Facebook profile pictures. So they're more at risk for things like pornography. Comparison, which we know is not a helpful thing. Privacy issues, and that's actually your child's privacy with with advertisements and cookies and all of those things. And then peer pressure and then self-regulation and possible addiction of electronics. When we think of high school, those are the risks that we want to be aware of and we don't want to be blindsided by. We want as parents to be communicating with our child. We really want to take initiative to try to reduce some of those risks. With regards to some of the benefits of social media for for high schoolers, and I'm going to talk a little bit more, is, you know, adolescence is, is a time where your child is trying to find more of their identity. And they're going to establish that more in later adolescence, you know, 17 and 18. That's, it's going to be more established than from 13 to 15 or 14 to 15. But some of the ways that social media can help with that is, one is they might be using social media is a way for community involvement. And that's actually a great thing. So posting to raise money for things, advocating for things. So those are some of the, that's a benefit in social media. One, education, that's another one. So when your child is on YouTube and they have a project and they're on the National Geographic website, your child is learning through social media, identity development. So they're able to connect with other people. So if they want to go to medical school and they're now in a group chatter on Facebook and a group of other teenagers who want to go to medical school. Well, that's a way to help them further up that desire of theirs. Same thing with aspirational development. They're able to look up things. What are some pros and cons of wanting to be an athlete in college? Mm. And then also peer engagement and connection. So that is where we find entertainment and education are very important for high schoolers, this peer connection. And that's actually what we see more through things like texting. But they're communicating and connecting the same way, you know, in the 80s and 90s where we do a phone call. Mm-hmm. They're connecting through social media. And that's not all bad. It's done under the right adult supervision. Wow, that's really good. That's really good. So as you're talking about social media and just communicating with friends, that kind of segues us into another topic during those adolescent ages, and that's relationships with the opposite sex. And I know people like to say boyfriend, girlfriend. I think in our house, that's like a banned word. (laughs) (laughs) And my 19-year-old always says, Mommy, why, if one of my friends has a boyfriend, why can't you say boyfriend? I said, you always refer to them as their friend. I said, because they are their friend. (laughs) There are no boyfriends. So could you help us? Could you help us as moms and parents out there to start kind of talking with how do we communicate? How do we talk? 
definitely based on the gospel, you know, what these friendships and relationships should look like. Should there be these friendships and relationships? And, you know, how can we in a healthy way begin to foster these thoughts um, in our high schoolers about relationships with the opposite sex? So when I look at the research, I'm going to come to you what the research says, and then as believers, how we can view this research in light of Scripture. So really, research has always said, well, most adolescents date, it's kind of normal, there's some really good things that can come out of it, and, and I agree that most adolescents probably do have a boyfriend or girlfriend, and I do believe there are some benefits if under the right guidance could come out of that. But there has been some more recent research done within the past year or so that actually said that when teachers rate adolescents that either have engaged in dating or haven't engaged in dating, that those who have not engaged in dating in adolescents are actually rated higher in things like social skills, leadership, and less in depression. Now, again, that's more of recent research. So I'll be interested to see where that research goes. That was out of the University of Georgia. And so I will be interested to see that because historically, it's well, if they're engaged in a dating relationship, that's teaching them social skills. It's teaching them intimacy skills. But what we're seeing is those things are found in other places too. Mm-hmm. And so as believers... One of the things that we say to my son is, is there a point in dating if you know you're not going to marry that person? Mm Because where that relationship will end up is breaking up anyway. And so if you're not courting them, if your mindset isn't a long-term mindset, which we know is difficult for adolescents, then really is there a point in it? And if we can find that you can learn intimacy and you can learn social skills and you can learn leadership skills and relational skills elsewhere... As a believer, I think that we try to point them in that direction. You were talking about beginning to talk to, and you said you talked to your son who is 10 years old. So I'd like to ask for moms out there, you know, we think this is like light years away. You know, I'll begin to talk to them when they turn 16 or 17. When do you recommend that moms and dads begin to even talk about and broach this subject with their children? Well, what I loved when, when you opened this part two segment, Kira, what you said was, mom, you may not think you can relate to this adolescent talk because your kids are toddlers. And what I would say to those moms of toddlers is you're building foundational stones for things that occur 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And so when we start talking about these things, because of our culture, the media, the signs, where just our culture is going, our children are being exposed to sexual content earlier. And so, you know, we've had the conversation with my 10-year-old son of puberty. We have not had that sex conversation with him yet. But I've already noticed, he'll say, mom, that girl is hot. And I have to say, hey, bud, when we look at someone, we can identify them as being attractive. But really, we're going to look at females as that's your sister in Christ. That's your Mm -hmm. sister. And so that's where I've taken the conversation with him. Now, is it normal for somebody that started puberty to, to be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex? Yes. And that's where I actually think the church has not done a great job is we've taken this concept of sexuality in in adolescence and we've made it taboo and we've created guilt and we've created this purity culture. And really the focus shouldn't be on if you have sex, you're not pure because that's not what makes us pure. Christ makes us holy, pure and set aside. And so when we talk about dating, we talk about sexuality with our children, 
we first of all need to have an open and ongoing non-judgmental conversation with them. And we need to be speaking truth into them that sexuality is a wonderful God-given thing in our relationship when it's in the context of marriage. Mm-hmm. And really, we need to be combating culture. And mm-hmm. so culture saying sex is wonderful. Look at this pornography. Look at this romantic movie. See what your friends are talking about. We need to paint a better picture of sexuality in marriage and normalize that, yes, you might have these feelings of sexuality, but God wants you to hold out until you're married. But painting a better picture of that for for our adolescents. And the other thing is we've actually seen a decline in sexuality amongst adolescents in the past decade. And so researchers say, why? Why is this? And and there's actually, they're not 100% sure, but really what they've moved away from is abstinence-only programs. And as a believer, we want abstinence. But what they've replaced it with is they've actually replaced it with education. And that's a huge component for believers. We need to be talking to our kids. And I would say these conversations as far as the education about sexual component needs to start around puberty, around 12 and 13, and it's ongoing throughout adolescence. We need to be talking about sexually transmitted diseases. We need to be talking about unwanted pregnancies because the earlier in adolescence they're engaging in sexual activity, they're at higher risk for all of those things and for multiple partners. And so we need to, one, educate ourselves educate our kids, open conversation, and then paint a picture of the beauty of sexuality in marriage to counter the falsities presented by our culture. Yeah, Sarah, I think that's so important because actually even secular studies that are being honest have to always go back to the truth that a monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife is the most satisfying and healthy. I mean, if it's done in a Christ-centered way. And so I do think we've got to move away from sex is bad. Don't do that. Like, you know, just say no kind of a culture to we're waiting for God's best. So it's not this negative approach to sexuality, but that God who created us and has plans and purposes for us knows how we are best going to be satisfied sexually. And it's not the way of the world. It's through one man and one woman for life. And the exclusivity of that brings such delight and joy. And so, yes, I totally agree marriage and, you know, Jimmy and I, even from a young age, even before adolescence, talk about husband and wife stuff. And I think that's really important. And even young children just always pointing their sexuality to God's design. Yes, it is. I think where we've lost the battle is we've, is the the church. You know, we had all these kids doing purity pledges. Well, research has followed up, secular research, even in the journal pediatrics has followed up with those public professions of purity, like abstinence pledges, don't hold up over time. There's no difference in those who have made a pledge and those who haven't. What they have found is those who make their own internal pledge, and those are the kids. So again, this is a heart issue, not an outward behavior. Those who are rooted and, and truly have a desire, those are the kids who are less likely to have sex. And, you know, when we talk about sex, I think it's like 40 to 50% of high schoolers. And, and again, there's been a decline. And where we've really seen a decline is actually in ethnic minorities. So historically, the black community and the Hispanic community have higher rates of sexual activity in adolescence than the white community. And we've seen, although we've seen declines across all three, we've seen more declines in the ethnic minority culture than we have actually in the white culture. Yeah. And I feel like, thank you for addressing this, because a lot of young people, I feel like it's almost to the point since they were taught 
the way you were explaining, instead of like, it's a hard thing, they get to this point of sexual activity, but more in a rebel way than a physical desire way. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. So instead of like, just because emotionally or they are naturally driven just to be sexually active, it's gotten to a point that because they were raised this way, they're more just being rebel about it and just to prove a point and just go the opposite way because of the way they were raised, because we were not teaching our young ones from, like you said, from the beginning to have a heart about it and teaching them knowledge. And one of the things that research has just shown, and this was such an encouragement to me, and I think it will be for all parents, although religion holds a little bit of a buffer, a little bit, the one thing that research will point back to is one of the things that helps to decrease sexual activity in adolescence is a loving parental-child relationship. Mm -hmm. And I just think that speaks to when our kids trust us and we have a good attachment and we have this relationship with them. They only, they, we are providing the education. We're giving them truth. We're loving them. They know we're on their team. They know we are for them. And so that is priceless. And, you know, research, what I, what I love is when research points to gospel things, but see, secular research won't say that this is rooted in the gospel, but I know it is, and you know it is. So when research looks at parenting skills, authoritative parenting is the best type of parenting. And what authoritative parenting is, is parenting that's loving, open, communicative, that sets healthy boundaries. Isn't yeah. that gospel-centered parenting right there? Absolutely. We are parents who are authoritative. We have authority over our kids. We have expectations of our kids. We give our kids responsibilities. But it's this open and loving conversation, and, and we have connection with them, and, and we're discipling them. And so, you know, I think that's all really important when you're talking about sexuality and even dating in adolescence. Sarah, I have a question for you. So for those moms that are listening, there are single moms that have teenagers and they're going through this situation of their teenager is active sexually or how most parents says they're uncontrollable, uh, they're out of control or anything. But what's something you can tell our moms, they're single moms or they're doing this by themselves or single dads and they have teenagers, something that you can tell them, hey, this is a way that you can start this conversation, encouragement, advice. How can you help them? So when we think about adolescence, you know, having having both parents is it's definitely a benefit. But for some people, that's just not feasible. Maybe they are, maybe they've lost a spouse. Maybe they never got married, but you know they're a believer and they want to do things right. And they find their mom them as a single parent. And honestly, my heart goes out to single parents. I don't know how they do it between being a mom or dad and working. I mean, you have all of the stress on you. And so what we have seen in research is if you don't have either a mother or a father figure, in those situations, it's really important to seek out that type of figure for your child. That doesn't mean a dating relationship for the parent necessarily. What it means is, let's say you're a single mom and you have a son. Finding men that are healthy figures who can kind of take your son in mentoring or discipling, maybe that's mm -hmm. the, the youth pastor at your church. So, and that speaks to God wanting us to be in community. So when we see a widow or, or we see a single mom as a church, we shouldn't run from that. We should run towards that and we should pour in and we should help. We should help with the supervision of her child because supervision is important. And I hope that men or if in the case of a single father, that women in the church step up to include those children in their lives too. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. So Sarah, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I'm still just wanting more about how to communicate with high schoolers. Cause I've heard just from different moms, how I think sometimes we may feel even intimidated when our children reach that high school age and we feel like, you know, we've done our job. Now it's kind of hands off and just allow our children to make their own decisions. So I would ask how best or could you give us some tools to work with of communicating with our high schoolers at that age? Because they are very different than even middle school. But how can we encourage moms out there to continue to communicate and what else can we give them to just help them give them some language to even communicate with their high schools and continue to cultivate that relationship. Yeah, adolescence is, you know, it's a difficult time because you still have a child, but yet they look more like an adult and they're trying to separate themselves from you so they can watch. And, you know, as a Christian parent, as, as a believer, we want to launch our kids out for God's glory. We want to launch them out for the mission. We don't want to keep them at home once they reach the age of maturation. We want those things for them. And I think that's important to communicate to them. But adolescence is also a tricky time. And I think a lot of parents start pulling away when research suggests the opposite. You are to push into those kids. And here's what I mean by that. Don't stop the hard work of parenting just because they're 17. You know, there might be a few things that they're more independent. Yes, that's part of our job as parents is we're to train them, give them social skills, give them life skills so they can launch. And this is a time where if you see a deficit, you definitely need to pour in a little more. But what research shows over and over is even though adolescents will say, I don't want my parents to have rules for me, when they are pulled anonymously versus having, you know, direct conversation, adolescents over and over again say, yes, we want our parents involved. Yes, we want restrictions because otherwise they feel out of control. They still don't have full brain development. So our brain, your prefrontal cortex, specifically your frontal lobes, which are emotional regulation, organization, those things are not fully developed until your early 20s. And so these are still brain development wise children. And so we still as parents need to pour into them. Now, what that means is you are still going to disciple. You're still going to discipline, but I think your child needs more of a voice. Mm -hmm. And so that open communication of, Hey, you don't like this rule. Tell me why. Now, will you change your mind about maybe not, maybe you might, but it's allowing them and their independence. And you're trying to help them think through things to think through why they do or don't agree with some of the rules of your house. So open communication where you're allowing them to exert their opinion and they really feel heard and listened to. And there's going to be, have to be some areas of compromise. So what little things can you let go of? You know, like I regulate my four-year-old sweets. Well, when my four-year-old turns 15, hopefully I'm not regulating his sugar intake as much. Hopefully he can do that on his own, right? That's the training. But there's going to be other things where, you know, being alone with the opposite gender in your bedroom, well, I'm going to allow my four-year-old to do that because he's not thinking of that. They can play in the bedroom, <laughs> but I'm not going to let my 15-year-old do that. And so I think there has to be this constant, I'm here. I'm willing to talk. I love you. I'm allowing this identity. I want your opinion, but there are still rules of this house to keep you safe. The thing of it is that what you're saying is so right is that they internally desire it because they're not ready to make those decisions on their own. And I think that's such a big parenting fail on our part if we abdicate that responsibility when they are teenagers and college students, even in whatever, because the world is not stopping pouring into them mm -hmm. and pulling them and educating them in quotes 
and really trying to, in a sense, brainwash our kids. And so for us to just sit back and let them make decisions on their own, they're not making decisions on their own. Somebody is going to influence our kids. And what a shame for us if we don't be the ones that try to influence them for the sake of the gospel and for their own good and to put God's purposes in front of them. And God does that for us. God doesn't even put adults and just, you know, let us sit back and be on our own and figure things out for ourselves. That's why we have the Bible, because he's constantly instructing us until we die. And that's why we have the church and the community yeah. to help us keep moving forward. Right. And so, Sarah, we talked about husbands and wives and stuff, and I'm thinking about our teenager sexuality. And talk to us about the importance of displaying a healthy marriage for our adolescents, because if we're going to tell them that God's good and perfect plan is to have sex inside of marriage only, the biggest way that they see that is in the home. So talk about the impact of that. So when I think of research, so this is, again, I'm going to give you the research and then how as believers we should interpret it. So yeah. when research looks at things like divorce, they say there's not a whole lot of long-term effects on kids. And, and that effect will differ based on the age you get divorced. But that in that first year, there are some behavioral changes and emotional issues that can come up in your kids. But really what they say after divorce, the worst thing possible is the ongoing conflict. And here's how believers look at this, and, and this is how it relates to your question. What is worse for children is actually if you're in a conflict in a marriage is for a child to live in ongoing conflict. It's actually better for parents to get divorced than to live in ongoing conflict. Now, as a believer, we don't say, well, it's better to get divorced, so you might as well. No, no. That's how research interprets it. As believers, we say, no, you're not going to get divorced. You need to work on the conflict because neither is good. And so if a child is constantly exposed to conflict or an unhealthy marriage, not only is that skewing their view of marriage, it's also creating possibly some mental health or behavioral issues. And so when we're discipling our kids, we can't disciple our kids and lead them to a place we've never gone before. So if we're in a marriage that's unhealthy sexually, emotionally, behaviorally, and I'm not talking about instances of domestic violence or emotional abuse, that's separate. But this is just in a marriage where there's a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. It's going to be harder to disciple your kid in sexuality if they're not seeing that in your own life. Mm -hmm. So that might be an instance in your marriage where you have to say, look, for the benefit of us and for the benefit of our children, we're really struggling. We need the help of a marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. And going and getting mental health treatment or walking with a godly counselor is not shameful. In fact, I think it's godly. It's bringing in community when you are struggling. It is bringing in somebody who, who can look at your situation and they're not biased and they're not emotional and they can pour into you. So sometimes when we're discipling our kids, we also need to be poured into. So having a healthy marriage, decreasing conflict, that doesn't mean you don't disagree or share your opinion, but it means you have healthy conflict resolution. And then, you know, complimenting each other. They need to see the husband respecting the wife and the wife respecting the husband. I hope, Dad, that you're pouring into and pursuing your wife, your son, your daughter. They need to see that. And women, I hope that if you, whether you're working outside the home or in the home, I hope what they hear and see is that 
being a mom is not burdensome. Being a mom is joyful. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean that we love every single thing about being a parent. Mm -hmm. I don't like having to clean up vomit. That's not fun, (laughs) but it's a bigger picture if I'm serving because I love the Lord. So when they see joy in us, when they see respect and we've limited conflict in the marriage and where they see that, that is modeling something for them. And those sometimes our actions speak louder than our words. Sarah, I have a question for you now that you kind of share that topic about counseling and, and the marriage and for the kids. Can you tell our audience how helpful it is just to seek counsel and to seek professional help? Because sadly in the church world or in the Christian world, sometimes people see that as like, that's like not... I'm not letting, you know, God work in my life or I'm not listening to God or I'm not. I feel like sometimes we need to just put that aside and be like, listen, this is actually great. God has equipped people like you, Sarah, that we love with so much wisdom to help us and to keep our marriages centered, Christ centered and our families healthy. And even to the point that some kids even were were talking about anxiety and some situations have to be medicated and it's okay. Not everything is spiritualized. So can you talk to our audience about that? I've often struggled being seeing different sides of it. You know, I feel like the secular psychology gets it wrong because it's not rooted in the gospel or Christian foundation. But I've often felt like the biblical counseling has gotten it wrong and that it doesn't necessarily account for anything besides the spiritual matter. Mm-hmm. Not all the counselors, by the way, I'm not trying to generalize that, but it's got to be a both. And we have to tell people that, you know, God doesn't expect perfection. In fact, that's why we have Jesus, because we can't be perfect. Mm-hmm. And in the message of the gospel, there's grace and mercy. And, and it's not that we just go on sinning, but that we have somebody who understands. And there are circumstances in life that might drive us to get counseling. And that, I believe, is actually biblical. It's calling in the church. It's calling in people's giftings. And it's calling into community. And again, those are all biblical things. And so there's been a stigma that if I, if I get counseling, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And when we look at what are the barriers to mental health treatment, you know, people often talk about lack of education or lack of resources or finances, but really the biggest barriers to treatment is I think I can do it on my own and I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And so those are the people I would challenge to say, Hey, if, if you're really struggling, what makes you think you can do it on your own? Have you been able to do this on your own so far? And the longer you try to do it on your own, it, it's more like a rabbit hole. It's going to go farther down. It. And so I do believe God has equipped people in the church to be able to walk alongside of us. And not only is that beneficial for us, it actually benefits the marriage, it benefits the kids, and it benefits the church. And so instead of thinking there's something wrong with me, which I think is the, the message people often get, we need to think of... God loves me whether I'm stressed or at rest. His love for me doesn't change whether I'm struggling or not struggling. And God has provided resources to help me. Sometimes when we have true physical issues, sometimes God miraculously heals us. Other times he uses doctors and treatment. And that's the same thing with our brain. Our brain was affected by the fall just like our heart was affected by the fall and our bones are everything is affected by the fall. And there are some times where we have deficits in neurotransmitters and we need to get some help for that. Oh my gosh. I love that line. How you said that the heart and the, and the mind was affected at the same time. Sarah, we can keep going all the way, but I don't want to leave without you giving us some indicators or some advice for 
for moms that have high schoolers, what are things that they can see that you can say, hey, if you see your teenager acting like this or like that, that's an indicator that they need some therapy or some counseling help. So can you tell us some little cues for parents with high schoolers that you can let them know, hey, if you see this on your child, you can seek help. It's okay. And you look at, you can let them know. Yes. Yeah, so some of the red flags, I've broken it down into physical, emotional, behavioral, and academic areas. So physically, is your child lacking energy and fatigue or complete opposite? Are all of a sudden they're really hyperactive beyond what they've been? Are they having more headaches and GI issues, complaining more physically? Emotionally, are they irritable, crying, worrying, or even thinking of self-harm or suicide? behaviorally is your child wanting to isolate more now in adolescence we do see a normal wanting to be alone but this is beyond just wanting to be apart from family are they isolating apart from friends have there been significant changes in appetite to where they're gaining weight significantly or losing weight sleep disturbances not being able to fall asleep not being able to stay asleep or waking up a lot and then are they taking more and more risky behaviors and i don't mean you know experimenting or you know breaking curfew sometimes which i would see is more of a normal adolescent behavior again we as christian parents we we target that but are these children who are now experimenting and going way beyond that with drugs are they really pushing boundaries are they engaging in dangerous things and then academically are they having trouble paying attention are their grades slipping or are they skipping school and or are they trying to get out of going to school so these are all the different indicators that hey this is beyond what i would consider maybe an attitude or an eye rule which i would say is within the confines of normal development this is it's time to bring somebody else into this conversation and that's through seeking a godly therapist or counselor Sarah, you know, the three of us adore you and we respect you and we are grateful for the wisdom and counsel so and mm. education that you've provided for the three of us, <laughs> yes. uh, along with our listeners this morning. And we are excited to have you back next season to delve into some of these topics even more. But what I want our moms to know more than anything, if they don't get everything that we've said today, is the fact that you have pointed out how much it is important to keep the gospel central to all the things that we're teaching our children, whether they're young or middle school or high school, and that God has created us as a full being. He's created our minds, our hearts. He's created us spiritually, physically, and all, and He cares about all of it, and He's made all of it. And so, Sarah, I just am grateful for you. I so appreciate you coming on today. And will you come back again? I would love to come back. Any chance to talk with you three ladies? I'm in all of you guys in your parenting. (laughs) Well, you're a blessing. We love you. And we're going to sign off for now. But ladies, we'll look forward to hearing from Sarah Rayner again soon. And so from the mom village to all of you, we are going to sign off. You ready, ladies? Yes. Yes. One, two, three. Bye. 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 Bye.